This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the Equalizer podcast. I am your host, Claire Watkins. And this week, oh boy, just like Jennifer Lopez used to say, we used to have a little. Now we have a lot. We have a lot to go over. We have four NWSL games to cover. The first two match days of the Challenge Cup. We also have one very interesting U.S. Women's National Team friendly to discuss Um, along with some other results, and one very exciting rebranding. I am joined again this week by my friend and colleague, John Halloran. How's it going, John? I feel good. I think uh, it's pretty amazing what a little sense of normalcy, as you mentioned, having a lot of games, sitting in front of my computer, my TV, most of the weekend watching soccer. I woke up this morning and I felt as good as I felt in a really long time, and it was nice uh, to have that sensation for, I think, the first time in over a year. Yeah, I would say that for me, it definitely, and we'll talk about this a little bit, uh, these games felt like they mattered very much, not only to the fans, to the organizations, clearly to the players. There was a lot of pent-up energy going into this one, um, and it was it was, uh, it was fun, frequently, <laughs> frequently perhaps chaotic, but, but fun to watch. Um, so we're just going to take this game by game. We're going to do it in the order in which they were played uh, and do our best to break this down. I'm also glad that you're back on this week, John, because we're getting a first glimpse of maybe how right or wrong we were last <laughs> yeah. week. I think we did okay, actually. I think yeah. that there were some echoes of what we said throughout all of these games. Uh, so we're going to start with the Challenge Cup opener, which was Chicago traveling to Houston. Houston was able to unveil their 2020 Challenge Cup banner, which I thought was really nice. A little bit of celebration, a little bit of, you know, pomp and circumstance to kick the whole thing off. Uh, The game itself, not a lot of fireworks to this one. It ended 0-0. I think it was funny to listen to the commentary of the match. Um, It's always always fun to listen to commentary. It was JP Della Camera and Ali Wagner try to come up with things to talk about when a game is really being played out in the middle third. Um, And I enjoyed actually how Wagner expressed some frustration with it. She Mm -hmm. maybe expected a little bit more from both of these teams. I would agree, except, and this is, this is hindsight being 2020 a little bit in the context of some of the other games that were played this weekend. I think we can say that this one was played very intelligently in both teams, defensive third without a ton of great ideas in the attack. What do you think, John? Yeah, well, I think what you saw was teams that had most of their defense. Um, And even with Chicago, even if you want to say that Davidson and Ertz are their normal center back pairing, there have been so many games where those players have been unavailable, whether due to injury or international appearances, that 
that Chicago back line felt very much like what we're used to on a week to week basis. And I thought the same thing. You look at Houston's back line, um, that's very close to their starting lineup, even in a full strength roster. So I think what you saw is, or maybe what you're alluding to is a little more organization than right. we saw yeah. uh, in, in some of the other games. Yeah, I thought um, looking at the little battles that were kind of playing out, um, you had Veronica Latsko in that center nine position that Rachel Daly usually takes. And she had a similar job, though it wasn't quite as intense. They didn't really, Houston did not quite do that as intense of a full team press right. as we saw in the Challenge Cup. They had their moments, um, but her job was to disrupt distribution and also be available as an attacking channel. What I think Houston was missing the most was the attacking play of Nichelle yep. Prince and Christy Mewis. Um, no disrespect to who they had on the field. The ideas just were not quite the same and were not done with quite the same amount of purpose. Um, though they had moments where they looked, they looked kind of scary. They didn't look quite so much like they were controlling the midfield and the stats kind of played out in Chicago's favor when all was said and done, but they did have some moments where they got in behind and Chicago had to recover. Um, and then on Chicago's end, maybe even going back to the defense, really strong in positioning and ball winning and recovery, but it didn't feel necessarily like they had their distribution lanes because the two main distributors on that team are Tierna Davidson and Julie Ertz kind of from wherever they are on the pitch. And so it felt like Chicago couldn't necessarily dictate the lanes that they wanted to start with. And then also it felt like they were trying to do that too much in the attacking third. Well, I think to add on to that, when you look at what Houston was missing and what Chicago was missing, you mentioned Houston not having that attacking punch that they would normally have, whether that's Prince or Daly or Mewis. That Chicago back line and that Chicago midfield and that Chicago attack is pretty close to what you're going to have. And that's, listen, if this is a 0-0 game, in the opening game of a regular season, you take a point on the road. I think if you're Chicago, you sit back and you go, hey, we got a point on the road against the defending Challenge Cup champions, and we'll take it. But this is a Challenge Cup, which means that if you want to play in the final, you've got to win your group. And on paper, Chicago's roster was stronger than Houston's. Chicago had their first-choice midfield. The, and every one of those midfielders is an experienced NWSL veteran. Uh, they are all players who have been in, at least in the conversation for the national team, um, all the way up to somebody like Morgan Bryan, who's a you know two-time World Cup winner. There's got to be more there. There just has to be that midfield. You know, you're, you're you're pointing out the distribution on the back line, and that's fine. But those midfielders have to be able to be a little bit more dynamic and creating. And that front line's got to be able to do more because absent Pew who we still, by the way, don't know what she is as an NWSL player. That's more or less the attack that Chicago is going to have all year. And you just, I guess you, at least I personally expected a little bit more punch out of that because fine, you didn't score a goal. They didn't really create a ton of chances either. Right. And that's not great right. going forward. Yeah, I agree. I think um, we saw Katie Johnson in the nine for them, which she didn't really play for them. I think she maybe got one role in, in the nine in the Challenge Cup, if I recall correctly. Um, she didn't play there. Well, she was hurt during the fall series, so she didn't play there in the fall series. Uh, I would say for me, it's still just a question of, and this goes back to, and we're, you know, we 
it's almost like we're too close. So we have more, we have more criticism, but I go back to the 2019. I just keep going back to that 2019 world cup break and Chicago struggled during that time. And one of the things that they struggled with was just that kind of killer instinct, being lethal, being clinical, being brave, um, not waiting for the perfect moment. Actually, I rewatching this game, I thought they could have taken a couple shots from distance and they might have had one go in, which is actually something that speaks to who I thought was their strongest player, which was Morgan Gatra. I thought Gatra had a great game um, matched by Katie Naughton, who I also thought had a great game. Right. So, yeah. So I am very interested to see now what this means for both of these teams in their next games. Um certainly Chicago versus Portland is going to be a big one to circle because Portland did look pretty clinical, though we have some other things to talk about in that game. But before we move on from this one, I did briefly want to mention, because I think it's important, uh, Sarah Gordon, Chicago center back Sarah Gordon, uh, posted on Twitter and then today actually followed up on Instagram with the, with the same post saying that she experienced what she uh, perceived as racial discrimination after the game. She said that her boyfriend, and it sounds to me like it was her boyfriend and maybe a couple of his friends, um, were singled out uh, in the stands wanting to see her after the game was over. And she specifically said that her boyfriend was threatened with arrest for coming close to the field. Um, This is not the first time we've seen that particular issue, especially with opposition at an opposing field. However, the stories that we hear in the NWSL frequently are coming from these black women, from these black players. Jessica McDonald had an issue in Utah. AD French had something even more overt happen to her in Utah in terms of a fan yelling. Um, and Houston put out a statement yesterday, yesterday, which was Saturday, um, which was very vague and did not seem to take the situation as seriously as they needed to. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, John, if you have any thoughts you want to add to that, maybe what you would like to see going forward from teams or the league to make sure that everybody is safe after games, even your opposing team. No, I think it's a huge issue. I think I think this is an issue on multiple levels because like we know from just our access in, in Chicago how close the players get to the fans and how close the players can get to the fans after a game. So I do think that just in general, and if you remember – the, at the U.S. game in Chicago two years ago, three years ago, that that fan who ran on the field and Allie Long went chasing after the fan. So I do think that just in a general sense that this league, which has kind of been, you know, the little engine that could for years and years and years, as it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, we're probably going to see this just as, a, as an issue pop up. But I think the disturbing part, which is what you mentioned, is that uh, and and as we talked about, seems to be completely backed up by the assistant coach of Chicago is that this that, that Sarah's partner was targeted because he's a black man and um, that obviously Houston was not having a similar issue, even as they were intermingling with, with their families. And so um, I think on a personal level, these are the types of things that make me step back um, and look at situations from a little bit higher up because I think, I think it's difficult to describe or to quantify um, racism, which might be institutionalized or systemic 
And I think these are the types of examples that if you're really listening to the voices uh, of, of whether that's black players or just black Americans in general, that you hear over and over and over. Uh, Lauren Holiday shared a story about her husband, the, the former U.S. national team player and Kansas City player, shared a story about her husband being pulled over um, and how she felt that that situation escalated much uh, to a much higher degree than it, than it should have. The fact that Sarah's partner was threatened with arrest here, like, and, and, and especially right now, you know, when you're talking about involving the police, then this, this takes on a completely different dynamic. And so I think, you know, my, my, and again, this is just being very honest. My initial reaction was, you know, how do you know that this is because of race? But again, once you take that step back and you say, well, let's take a second, let's look at this, um, you know, does this match story after story after story that we've heard previously? Um, and I had a similar reaction. And again, I, I'm being honest here, like when Parkinson came out with his statement, my first thought was, oh, this is like a verified thing now. But then I thought, why do I need Parkinson to verify that? Why am I not right. just accepting this on its face uh, when it was first brought up? And so these are the types of things that I think a lot of us carry inside, whether we realize it or not. And I think we really need in these situations, and I hope the league does this. I don't have a ton of faith that we're going to get a more positive outcome. But take a step back and say, wait a minute you know, do we have some uh, internal biases, things that maybe we're not even consciously aware of right. that are affecting the way that we think about these issues? Yep, I agree. And I think that also just primarily this comes down to, and all of these incidents is safety. And I think that if the league and these teams cannot guarantee safety to the people participating, that is something that has to be addressed on an institutional level, and it has to be safety for everybody. The league did tell the Chicago Sun-Times that they are investigating the incident. We'll see if we get any follow-up information about that. The league has not been forthcoming sometimes about what they find in their independent investigations, so we will see, um, and we will be sure to follow up on that. So that was Chicago-Houston. Moving on to the second game, this was uh, the late game on Friday night, hashtag NWSL after dark, uh, Portland (laughs) versus Kansas City. Uh, Portland wins two to one, and the game begins in a way that felt like something we had seen before. I want to say that Portland is continuously impressive to me, that they do carry small rosters, but every single player on that roster seems to really understand the game plan and have the Mm -hmm. ability to execute it. I was struck by that again in the first half of this Kansas city game uh, where you have not necessarily your top choice 11, but their style remained the same. They were a little bit weaker in their central defense, perhaps because they were missing Mm -hmm. both of their starting center backs. I thought Megan Klingenberg, they put Megan Klingenberg in actually as the number eight in the midfield, right. which she wreaked havoc up there. I think actually that's a great uh, spot for her because she's someone who is very attacking minded, even when she's playing on the outside. Um, she gets sends in a great service to Rocky Rodriguez. Rodriguez puts that into the goal. Uh, and then Tyler Lucy puts Portland up two to nothing later in the half. And you start to think, okay, Portland is rolling. They're playing in front of fans for the first time again. Emotions were very high, even from the very beginning. Um, 
Simone Charlie gets a something of a soft yellow card in the middle of this match. Uh, in the second half, Kansas City actually starts to come back a little bit. I was very impressed by what Kansas City did mm-hmm. in the second half of this game. They did not quit. Amy Rodriguez as a motivator and a vocal leader, I you can't say enough about it. When she comes, she comes to play. And she was not letting this game get away from them. They get one back on a really cool outside of the foot shot that she arcs into goal. Um, Very impressive. They don't necessarily have the ability to get that equalizer. Portland starts to try to just possess the game out. Um, And this is where things got a little intense. Uh, John John didn't see this one, so I'm just going to lay it all out there. And you can tell me what you think. I wrote all of this down. Here's the sequence of events as I understand them. The first thing that happens is Simone Charlie gets her second yellow card on what is a bad tackle. You can tell immediately that she regrets doing it. Um, she It's like a look of embarrassment on her face. She wishes she could undo what she had just did. Whether the first yellow was soft isn't as relevant. That has to be a card. You can't not give a card to that. She is sent off. Uh, Mark Parsons has some commentary about that. He says something to Daniel Chesky. And from what you can see on the stream, play has kind of gone back to the middle of the field, but Parsons is still directing something. It wasn't really like big, loud, angry. It was just something very pointed and intentional to Daniel Chesky, who very calmly walks over, shows him a red card. He is ejected, which he doesn't argue with. He goes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's that interaction. Portland now goes to the corner flag just to try to get this out. There's some confusion in that the actual minutes of stoppage time in the, what was already going on with the officials. We don't know how much stoppage time there is. The players don't know how much stoppage time there is. Portland goes to the corner flag. There are two Portland players in the corner flag. One is Morgan Weaver. One is Tyler Lucy. Kristen Edmonds is trying to get the ball away from them. There's some shoving. Edmonds at one point is kind of sandwiched between Weaver and Lucy. It's very physical. Uh, Edmonds does succeed in getting the ball away and she clears it. Then in kind of trying to run away from the corner, this is after Weaver and Edmonds kind of get wrapped up. They both fall to the ground. That's a 50-50 to me. It looked like a 50-50 They both fall. As they get up, Edmonds doesn't see Weaver, kind of bumps into her. Weaver kind of shoves her off. Edmonds shoves back with hands to the face. After that, they are talking to each other. It's heated. Madison Pogark actually comes in with a two-handed shove to Edmonds after it's over. Uh, Abby Smith grabs Edmonds, separates them. At this point, Nobody is being aggressive. We have two red cards shown, one to Kristen Edmonds, one to Morgan Weaver, who was visibly surprised to receive that red card. You can see her on the stream saying, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. Uh, So (laughs) what do you think, John? (laughs) Tell us the exact right thing that should have happened there. I I do think, as a lot of other people have said, that it probably a yellow is probably a better decision for Weaver there. Um, But I I will add a couple of things for context. If you watch the initial um, 
contact when both players go to the ground in the corner. Yeah. Edmund's leg comes in between Weaver's. And then instead of maybe, uh, I don't know, sidestepping, if you watch Weaver's left arm, it comes around the waist mm-hmm. of Edmonds. And right. at that point, they're intertangled to the point that they're both going to go to the ground. Right. So whether that was instinctual or intentional to try to hold, because look, if you look at them, as soon as they start to get up, what is Weaver trying to do? She's trying to impede Edmonds. Yeah, she's running kind of getting a back play, play on Edmonds. Yeah, exactly. Right. Now, we can, and we can get into a further debate about the difference between shielding and obstruction. Right. Um, but clearly the ball is not in play at that right. point. And, and Weaver is trying to run her off. And she's trying to run her off while using her forearm right. uh, into Edmonds. Now, because Edmonds is getting up off the ground, that forearm is somewhere. It's high. Between, yeah. Right. Somewhere yeah. between Edmonds' neck and face. Right. And uh, at that point, you know, you might expect a reaction from Edmonds. I think, but the second she goes to the face like that, right. th- that's it. There's right. no question right. that Edmonds deserved a red and that she's probably going to get something on top of it. Right. Um, and then the fact that she was bouncing around like a prize fighter afterwards didn't. They you know, both show were well. though. They, uh, we but, were had her hands you know, up. Like, <laughs> um, they, uh, and, uh, listen, I just made clear Weaver's not innocent. And at least yeah, two, right. two parts of this, but right. Um, I saw one, I don't remember who made this comment, but I saw one person say, just because the other person overescalates right. doesn't mean that the initial foul, the initiation right. is worth a red. Mm. So I, I think that's what happened. I think because Edmonds reacted the way they did, right. Chesky felt like, well, I got to, I got to get rid of them both. The thing I also wonder in the moment, because it was away from the ball, I don't know what officials saw it. We had video yeah. replay. I don't know. This is very like, we don't have VAR, you guys. These are people making decisions right. in the moment. The game was effectively over. She had already sent two people off. I think that she maybe didn't see, I'm not saying this is what happened, but I think it's possible that she didn't actually see what happened. She saw a fight and she said, you are both yeah. gone. Yeah. Um, and she might've been relying too on the AR because right. a center official well, a really good center official will often take a take a, about a one second pause behind the play to right, just we'll make linger. sure yeah. something dirty doesn't happen. Um, but most of the time, you're focused on the ball, right? Because that's where the action is, and so that's why stuff happens off the ball or behind the play. If you watch the the dirtiest players I have I have ever seen are the ones who wait about one second until the ball's released right? and then come through the ankles from behind right? because the, the center official misses it right. most of the time. So uh, I think that's a valid point about whether, whether Chesky saw it or not. I, there's other dynamics to this too. Um, you know, Chesky is never, ever, ever going to get away from the reputation right. that came out of that 2017 final. Right. Yeah. Um, that game got totally out of control yep. and it was not handled well. And then of course it just kept going and it involved Portland, right? which listen, if I had to guess, I would say at least a small portion of Megan Klingenberg's post-game comments were directed at Chesky in particular. Right. Um, although I do think Portland probably got the better of the, the rougher play in that final years ago. Um so it's just, it, it's a very complicated issue. And, 
I think it's probably different if it, maybe if we have VAR, um, maybe it's different if it's not Chesky. Right. Um, but nobody's, nobody's really innocent in this. Weaver's not innocent in this. And that's, I, I really didn't choose that word uh, intentionally, <laughs> but obviously. Well, you talk about another... escalation, things escalated long after the fact, you know? So um, no, I mean, the way, the way I see it is you, uh, the, the reality always in soccer, in American football, um, it's never the instigator who gets the worst of right, the right. punishment. It's always the person who pushes back. I think that will probably still be true here. Um, but that doesn't mean that the instigation didn't happen. Uh, and so we'll see. I think uh, Portland said that they wanted to appeal to get Weaver off of that red card. I'm not sure there's enough video evidence to rescind that decision, especially if PRO wants to stick by their, their ref. Um, I think, honestly, in their next game against Chicago, losing Weaver isn't good. Losing Charlie is much worse. So they have some stuff to deal with there. That's a lot of their attack that they're going to be missing because they're still not going to have those players who are away on international duty. And yeah, we'll just have to see. (laughs) Um, The thing that's too bad is I thought that this was probably the most comprehensively played game of the weekend, and it got overshadowed a little bit uh, because I think that both Portland and Kansas City had positives to take away from that. Sure. So... Moving on to match day two to the East. Um, perhaps our, our grand, our grand victory in our preview was this, was this North Carolina game versus mm-hmm. Washington, because you actually convinced me, John, you convinced me last week that North Carolina was going to get in a lot of shootouts and they were probably going to win them. And that yeah. is exactly what happened here. Uh, North Carolina, again, this is like a theme. North Carolina didn't have, uh, some starting center backs. Abby Urseg was out with injury. It was Skylar, uh, Skylar Debris and Kari Rocaro who were both in the center back position there. This game was very f- sloppy, but fun. Maybe, maybe sloppy is the wrong word. It was sloppy in some areas of the pitch and very well executed in other areas of the yeah. pitch. And that turned it into a fun game. Uh, the first defensive laps actually came from North Carolina side. Um, and Kumi Yokoyama strikes first on this very cool, slow ball to the to the corner. I thought that was great. Um, but then Kristen Hamilton quickly equalizes. Uh, I forget exactly what happens next. Jessica McDonald scores. Merritt Mathias scores. And then we get a big debut goal from Trinity Rodman. This game ends 3-2. What did you think of this one, John? So I just wanted to point this out because we we get into these discussions about possession a lot. North Carolina finished the weekend of the entire league with the lowest possession percentage of any team and the lowest total number of passes of any team. Uh, and they managed to score the most goals and have the most, uh, you know, uh, the, the most offense uh, of anybody out there and create the most opportunities. And it's like they're it's, whittled uh, down to their purest form right now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I'll say a couple of things. I think that, I've said this over and over and over. I still don't understand why nobody has tried to mimic what North Carolina does. I mean, you can accept that you're not going to do it as well as North Carolina, but whatever you think of Paul Riley, it took an enormous amount of courage for him years ago to decide I'm going to go with this box midfield that almost nobody in the world at any level plays. And then I'm going to spend years perfecting it 
to a point where not only can nobody replicate it, but nobody can stop it. And even if I lose three of my best players overseas, we're still going to be able to win games. Right. It's, it's really insane to put that into context. I also think that part of uh, what has allowed this system to work for years and years and years was having the outside backs to make it work. And the fascinating part to me was that with Matthias coming back and with the acquisition of Carson Pickett, that you didn't really lose a lot from O'Reilly retiring and Daniels retiring. Carson um, Pickett in fun. particular looked like a whole new player in that system. Um, yeah, I agree. I think North Carolina, their vulnerabilities were obvious and their strengths were obvious. I thought their center back pairing was weak. I thought their outside backs were flying. <laughs> um, yeah. I thought that Dabinia is still the quality player that we know her to be. McDonald and Hamilton have played together for a long time and do what they do well. Haley Mace was yep. quite good for them in the attack as her well. passing was really good. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting to me because that game was a North Carolina game. That was not a Washington game. That game did not play out. You know, that game did not play out the way that we wouldn't say, yes, that's the style of the Washington right. spirit. And for Washington, I think when they lost Andy Sullivan to international duty late, that was one player too many. And they just, oh, and then they lost Sam Staub to injury. They yeah, just do not have the right. people to do what they want to do. I'm, I'm really curious if the loss of Staub affected how they were going to line up because I, I know that, that there's been a lot of talk coming out of the Washington camp about playing a three back this year, which obviously they did, but Oh my goodness, was Paige Nielsen just left on her own in this game. It was so insane to watch how much ground they were asking her to cover. There were times she was all the way over on the left sideline, on the right side of the box, having to step into the midfield to deal with things, then having three players come right down her throat. Um, I really felt bad for her because I do think she is a quality center Mm -hmm. back. I think she's probably in the top. 25% 25% of Southern uh, of center backs in this league. And they really just hung her out to dry uh, between the, the system and North Carolina's prowess in, in bringing strength right up the gut. Yeah. The thing that I thought Richie Burke could have done and he didn't, and this is maybe a little bit of a sink or swim for Rodar at, uh, and I hope I'm saying that name right at center back um, in the absence of, of Staub and, and Sonnet and O'Hara. And he didn't move Tori Huster more central once it was clear yeah. that they were having those big gaps. And I, that was sticking. That was like, that felt like preseason to me. That felt like a preseason game for Washington, still evaluating depth, still figuring out who can play where maybe giving up, not giving up is too strong a word, but letting the result. If you're outplayed by a better team happen right. Right. and um, you learn and you go on. Definitely feels like this was them conceding that top of the group status. We'll see what the newly, I wrote this, I wrote this wrong and I had to cross it out with the new Gotham FC has to say <laughs> about that. Uh, but this feels like the path for North Carolina to reach that final. Um, and yet Trinity Rodman, that yep. is a huge, huge bright spot for Washington, especially because I'm not sure Ashley Hatch and Ashley Sanchez had great games. And so you're still looking for, it's kind of that Chicago question, who is going to be that star, that dynamic player, that person who is going to come in there and 
just have an eye and an ear and a nose for goal. Rodman, it's her second touch of the game is her goal. And her first touch was fantastic. Um, yeah. Any thoughts on, on what she Well, did? I just think that a lot of us were curious when Washington used that pick right. to go with Rodman, because we're talking about a player who literally never played a game in college. Mm-hmm. And to use, was I think it was the number two pick um, to come yep. right out of the gate like that and be like, nope, this is our player. Yep. Was a, just a really bold move. And for her to deliver in game one the way she did, it will be interesting because, you know, they, they moved Sanchez out to the wing in right. this game, whereas last year she was playing in that more central role. So you wonder, is that because they feel like they're set up better using, because I, I think Sanchez was filling that more, more central role, um, or is that an indictment of, of Hatch? perhaps not performing up to the level that they right. have been hoping because this is a player who's also been on the fringe of the national team. Right. And uh, somebody who I think most of us would have assumed they ha- were planning on building their attack around. Right. I agree. I think that the Sanchez to the number 10 conversion uh, process only works if you have a striker in front of her who can deliver and obviously still game one, still figuring things out. But Hatch has been in that system as long as anybody. She's been with the team as long as anybody. You wonder if maybe this is the last year of her kind of figuring out if this is the right fit or not. Um, but yeah, it was a good game. It, it was, again, it was sloppy in certain areas, but that was the blueprint for North Carolina. That's how they're going to win these early games. They are also getting fewer people back from the international break than they used to in the past. So we'll see how that changes once other people get stronger. But uh, that seems like the pathway. This is one where I think North Carolina is set up very well for this Challenge Cup. We'll see how it works in the regular season. Uh, Especially because, as you said, you would think it's a tactic that someone would just figure out and exploit. Right. People are still struggling to. So. I think it's cool. I do like the North Carolina. This goes back to the 2019 final, actually, where they do the open practice and they're just running mm-hmm. all the drills that they run. And they said, we don't care if you yep. know what we're right. doing. Yep. We're going to yep. do it to you anyway. Right. So Whereas Chicago had like hid. Hid, right. And, and exactly. run all of their stuff off site. Yeah, and exactly. did a stretching session. Right, right. Yep. Okay. So now moving on to the last game, that last NWSL game of the weekend, Louisville's big debut, a long time coming versus the Orlando Pride. This game ends two to two. It poured, pouring rain, yes. which was yes. a huge factor into the quality of the of the match. You had people slipping. You had the ball doing odd things. It was kind of gorgeous to watch on TV. Honestly, you had the big shower, but it was kind of a sun shower. There was a rainbow, beautiful weather for the second half, that sort of a thing. Louisville strikes first in this one, which I don't know... This is where I also think that we were not entirely wrong in our previews of these two teams, but how it played out was maybe a little bit interesting. Um, Orlando, again, like a lot of other people, had a new center back pairing of Kanye Plummer and Phoebe McLernan. They were exploited by Louisville early, and you started to wonder, oh, no, Orlando, are we doing Mm -hmm. this again? (laughs) Well, and then the goals that they scored were so amazing, right? right. I mean, that header from Corniak was right. absolutely terrific. And look, <clears throat> if she ends up doing this 
10, 12 times this season, there's going to be a lot of people, I think probably including myself that have to eat a little crow, right. uh, you know, on, on her coming in because there were a lot of people who were shocked when they used the pick that they did to pick Corniak up, yeah. up in, in 2020. And then, you know, to add on to it, Mark Skinner, uh, head coach of Orlando was so bullish after the draft speaking yeah. to the media about how, you know, we got every player we wanted. A lot of us were like, really? Like, um, and then two of those, two of those draft picks score and score amazing goals because right. the one by Abby Kim was terrific as well. Right. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think Korniak should play forward for them. I think that it's yeah. interesting what's going to happen when Alex Morgan comes back. I, she's not a possession player, really. She's not much of a passer or a distributor or a link kind of a player, She's your big target forward. She's very tall. Yep. She bodied, yep. she bodied Louisville's defense for that header. And I think that that's what you lean into. Uh, and I think that you don't get better game tape than that to sort of set the precedent for what you do with that player. And I think that she's going to give defenses a lot of trouble if they use her in that way. Um I think the other thing that I, the thought that I kept having watching this game as well is similar to what we said last week, which is that both teams have nice pieces of Mm -hmm. players who are doing good things, but the cohesion is just not there yet. And they were very evenly matched in this game. I'm not sure what's going to happen when they start playing some other teams. You saw the weaknesses in Orlando's defense. You saw the weaknesses in Louisville's midfield. It's going to be interesting to see what this turns into in the next couple of weeks. Who did yeah, you? Well, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, John. I was just going to say, because, you know, I tweeted out a couple of positive things about Orlando's performance and everybody was like, wait, you don't think that means they're going to be good. And I'm like, listen, can we not take one second right. to acknowledge <laughs> exactly. that they did some nice things? Because right. the reality is these are still probably going to be two of the bottom right. teams, you know, when, when all is said and done. Um, but Orlando was a little bit better than I expected. And, uh, and even Louisville had, yeah. had some nice moments. Uh, uh, Lauren Millay and Savannah McCaskill, if those are your dual eights or dual tens or however you want to characterize it, those, those are pretty nice players. And yeah. you, can, you can do a few things. And I still think, I still think Louisville's missing uh, probably needs a better center back uh, set up to, to mm-hmm. make things work ultimately. But they're going to catch a few results here and there. Yeah. And this is a tough one to say too, because it is one player. So there's no way to do it without singling somebody out. I did have the thought with Louisville that they had some other goalkeepers on the board as well. Um, Michelle Betos's distribution is an issue. It just is. She has a lot of other really great qualities, but you need to make up, you need to make up for that. And you need to figure out there was a moment where she kicked it. There was a counterattack because she kicked the ball right to right it was simply just because of length and this has happened to her a couple of times in her career where she's had goals scored on her simply because of her goal kick distribution so that one I thought I was like yeah well I other great qualities see how they adapt to that I thought Maggie Dory the Howard was great for Orlando as well I thought she kind of set the tone in the midfield which is someone that they need very badly um it looked like Orlando was going to win this one which I would have been a little bit like huh I don't know if I feel like Orlando was, you know, definitively the better team here. I was happy to see. I thought it was a great moment. The lights went off. The crowd cheered. They all did like strobe stuff. It was like suddenly you're at an EDM concert. 
Brooke Hendricks equalizes in stoppage time. That's how you kick off a club. You know, that's great. I I just wonder if you're a Louisville fan, if <laughs> just feel like I, I remember the old days on the video games when they would put up the the warning about having strokes from right. certain effects <laughs> yeah. in video games. That that light show was something else. I couldn't yeah. figure out what was going on at first. I right. had missed the I had missed the first goal. And um when I turned it on, I was like, did they lose power? What, what <laughs> what's going on here? Yeah. I thought it was cool. I thought the kits looked great under the black light. The flowers really popped. Uh-huh. Um, it definitely, uh, my photographer friend said, oh, that's either a photographer's dream or a photographer's nightmare. And I don't know which one it is. Um, but yeah, maybe it would have been nice. Well, I guess we got the memo now. We got the warning. If Louisville stores, scores in Louisville, be prepared. Maybe close your right. eyes if you need to. Right. Um, okay. So that's, we've seen everybody, but got the new Gotham FC and OL Reign. Any big surprises this weekend, or did this kind of go the way that you thought it might? I think almost exactly um, how I would have expected it to. Louisville-Orlando yeah. was was a pretty even match between squads with a lot of new pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, Washington-North Carolina. I thought maybe it would have been a little little closer. I know the scoreline was pretty close, but I still felt like North Carolina was throwing haymakers that whole sure. game and probably could have scored a few more. Um, Portland KC went how I went to be honest with you I, I still think Chicago should have beat Houston but yeah it does not shock me at all that they did that Chicago had a zero yeah. zero draw because yeah. that's been their MO since 2013 so right yeah yeah we saw a lot and this actually makes sense you see teams that have not gotten a lot of pro level competition in preseason we saw a lot of teams just play the way that they play you know you saw yeah. just a lot of club identity this weekend which is a great way to start I think um, so Portland currently sits atop the West, North Carolina currently sits atop the East. Tell me something I haven't heard before. Uh, and that is it for NWSL play this weekend. We will have more games for you next time. We're now going to take a little break and then we will turn to the international stage talking USA versus Sweden. Hey everyone. Thank you for listening to the Equalizer podcast. We'll be right back to that in a minute, but just want to make sure that you're aware of our other podcast from the Equalizer Network, Kicking Back. It's one that I host, and each week we talk to personalities from across the sport of women's soccer, coaches, players, executives, plenty of great guests throughout season one from U.S. coaches, Vlatko Anonofsky, Jill Ellis, to players like Crystal Dunn, Becky Sauerbrunn. NWSL Commissioner Lisa Baird. So many great guests. And we're coming up on Season 2 pretty soon, and you are not going to want to miss what we have in store for you. So go ahead and check out Kicking Back. If you're listening on a podcast platform right now, you can find us there as well. We're on all the podcast platforms, and we're looking forward to another exciting season of really in-depth interviews and fun interviews with our latest guests. That's it for me, and let's get you back to the Equalizer podcast. All right. Welcome back to part two of this week's edition of the Equalizer podcast. Before we go any further, must ask you guys to rate and review the podcast in Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or anywhere that you get your podcast content. It helps us out a lot, helps people find the podcast, especially now that we've got games going on. So help people out. Give us a, give us a five-star rate and review. Uh, some quick, quick things. Thing number one, I don't want to go any further without mentioning that we have a rebrand in the NWSL. 
Sky Blue FC, Sky Blue no longer, uh, and it's going to take a while for me to get used to it. They are now Gotham FC, specifically chosen because they did not want to be particular about New Jersey or New York because they want to represent the whole area. They wanted something that made sense for a large group of people. They went with Gotham. I thought that what they did with their sort of N, half Y, half J thing was pretty nifty. I thought the kits looked great. Uh, What do you think, John? Kind of good to start over 2021? I have no problem with it. Uh, I think you, you kind of have transitioned from one brand, which didn't really describe where you were at to one that maybe more closely, although I did see the debate about whether Chicago was really Gotham based on the Batman series. Oh yeah. (laughs) That was an interesting debate that was happening, but um, yeah. And then you pointed out that the, the NJ and the NY are actually both in there at the same time, which I Mm -hmm. didn't notice until you pointed out that it took you a minute to notice. It did. Yeah. I, I mean, I get their, their desire to, 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 pay homage to New Jersey and their roots, but I could have done without the NJ and Y at the beginning and just made it cleaner with Gotham, but yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, I think we'll see, we'll see what it looks like on the broadcast. It could be kind of clunky. I think it's possible that it's a full five character NJ dash and Y would prefer something different. Um, I, I will be, I'll, I'll be the first person to say, I think that it should have to be three letters. I have been on the road to NC. I want NCC. I want, something for Kansas city. Once they have their full branding, I want it just to be three and three. I struggle with something that's longer or shorter. Um, so we'll see. I think it's great. I understand wanting to usher in a new era mm-hmm. with a new name, new branding. They've changed so much, both off and on the field, give it what it deserves. Sky blue has been associated with a lot of stuff. Some of it good, some of it not so good. Um, I think what Elise LaHue said is she said that Sky Blue was an aspirational name. And I love that. And I love maybe the idea of saying, well, did we live up to it always? Maybe not. So let's try something else. Let's be a little bit more specific while also sticking to to what we've been this whole time. It's going to take me a million years to get used to it, but I support it. Uh, Okay, so now we're switching over into the international game. Want to run some other results from the week before we get to the U.S. because I thought they were interesting. Uh, a lot of teams who are playing in the Olympics lost to teams who are not playing in the Olympics this week. France beat England 3-1. to one. England will be Team Great Britain, but as of right now, they're still just Team England. Germany beat Australia 5-2. to two. Spain beat the Netherlands 1-0. to nothing. Canada did beat Wales 3-0. to nothing. Japan thumped Panama 7-0 to nothing last night. And in probably the most relevant um, game to the tournament itself chile beat cameroon two to one in the olympic playoff so that is important they do have a second leg but it looks like chile is in the driver's seat now to get that final berth into the tokyo olympics uh but now we're going to dig into the big money the big headline usa versus sweden there's a one-one tie that the u.s almost lost not necessarily because they were, well, they had some struggles in the back, but it was <laughs> to kind of pick up from segment one, they were a little bit like uh, the U S women's national team red stars in this one, where it just wasn't really happening up top. They had some specific areas that Sweden, I thought Sweden's game plan was great. They came out in a three, four, mm-hmm. three. And yep. the thing that also struck me was not only were they flooding the wings, they were physical in that midfield. And I think I thought to myself, that is a team 
that knows the U.S. really well and knows that in addition to having the tactical game plan and having the technicality, you have to win that physical battle in the midfield. And we saw Haran go down. We saw Ertz go down a couple times. We saw Lavelle go down. They were not messing around. And I think that they put together a good blueprint to get a draw. And as we know, in these knockout tournaments, draws can turn into wins. So I was very impressed by Sweden. Thought the U.S. had a pretty not great game, though. Yeah, and then you get into that debate about how much of that is Sweden making them not look great and how much right. of that was just so many of the U.S. players being in a preseason mode. Although that preseason mode hasn't really seemed to affect them earlier in, in 2021 or even in late 2020, so I don't think that's really a valid excuse. But Sweden playing that three-back slash five-back uh, I thought was really effective because when the U.S. came down, on the attack, you could still see the combinations, but they just couldn't find that extra six inches of space that they right. needed. And I think Sweden having seven or eight people uh, back behind the ball on defense really made a big difference. Uh, as you mentioned, this is one of the only teams in the world that consistently pushes the U.S. to their limits, whether yeah. that's the, the 2016 Olympics or here. Um, Sweden just has an ability to and whether that was under Pia or under their new coach now to set up in a way that frustrates the U.S. They seem to have a really good understanding of how the U.S. succeeds and then how to cut them off yep. from that juice. Um, and I, I, the other thing I thought about Sweden's 3-4-3 was that it created fits on the U.S.'s left side right. because the outside wing back would advance a little bit past press and then Haran and Dunn would get caught in this no man's land of do we step do we stay and when Dunn would step a player would get in behind and then Davidson would have to come all the way out into the wide space but then if Dunn didn't step then that meant they had you know free reign to find their passing angles uh, in, into the U.S. so it was just a fascinating game I think from a tactical perspective. Yeah, I thought it was a good game. Um, yeah, and the thing that maybe interested me about the U.S. in the way that they played, and I don't know if this was because of Sweden or if this was what they were told by their coaching staff or if this was just kind of the energy that the team had that day, we didn't quite see that same clampdown on Sweden's back line. Mm -hmm. I was a little bit surprised because we've talked a lot about Lynn Williams' role as a defensive attacker. That expectation is there also for players like Lloyd and Press. I didn't think that the midfield or the backline got a lot of help from their attack, not even just moving forward, but in defending. So I don't know if that was what they were told or if that was they just came out a little bit flat that day. Um, but there were some performances in that game where I actually thought to myself, man, I don't know. This might have been not the game to sort of not be there. I don't know. This is where the decisions are getting made. Uh, one player I thought did perfectly well was Tierna Davidson. And I know you wrote a piece about what she did um, for the equalizer for our written, for the written website. And I don't know if you want to elaborate a little bit on what you saw Davidson doing. Cause I thought that she was very poised back there. I think that especially if we consider the fact that this was Sweden, and right. that we considered that this game was in Europe 
and that we consider that overall, even the stars of the team did not play well. I think in all of that context, Davidson did play very well. She made some mistakes. There there was, um, there, there were two issues, two times where she got into trouble. Um, but both of them were off of soft passes to her. Right. And I thought the one from Haran, there wasn't much she could do. She was on her back foot. Haran played a soft back pass. The Swedish attacker burst in, touched around her. That was the one that Nayer saved on the breakaway. Right. Um, right before half. I think literally like five seconds before half where, right. where Sweden probably could have gotten a goal. And um, the other one in the second half was a soft pass from Sauerbrunn across the center of the field. On that one, I thought Davidson probably should have gone to the ball um, and probably was a little, a little slow to do so. And that resulted in another chance. I think one of the big things that that hurt Davidson in the times where she did get in trouble, besides the issue on the left that I already talked about, which is that Dunn kept getting stuck in this, this no man's land, right. was that the U.S. midfield in transition did a really poor job of tracking. Right. There are, and, and if, if you do happen to visit this, this article on, on the Equalizer about her play, you know, there were times where Haran just quit tracking a runner. Yeah. And then that gave Davidson another player that maybe she wasn't expecting. There was a time where Ertz just quit uh, tracking a runner. And Davidson was literally at one point the last defender and had two players. Yeah. Um, which, is, you know, right, not great shape um, by the U.S. in that situation. And and then the later on, there was one where the opposite happened, where Ertz was tracking off of Davidson's back shoulder. And I don't think Davidson knew mm-hmm. that Ertz was tracking. And so Davidson stayed center when she should have gone wide right. to pick up a player. And so the whether these are communication issues or just maybe the U.S. midfield had a low energy day. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. They, they left her in some bad situations. So right. I do think that a lot of times she got in trouble wasn't necessarily her fault. Yeah, I agree. I think that that's sort of the story of the day, right? Of I'm not entirely sure why Lynn Williams wasn't more active defensively. I'm not entirely sure why Kristen press wasn't more active defensively. Um, when the U S was kind of flowing a little bit better, they were flowing through Ertz and Lavelle, but you did have markers get missed. And you know, it's to the U S credit that they only conceded on a corner kick. Cause they're kind of last ditch. It's good to get those drills in because that, that worked. Okay. I thought Nair had a similar game where she had some moments, but also she got held, hung out to dry. So she did yeah. the best she could in those moments. Um, and we know that for Nair, you can't do that to her. She's really good in a lot of other ways, but that is not, you cannot, she's not the keeper for that. Um, And that's also kind of what we saw on the corner kick. It was zone marking. Someone got completely lost. Nair got caught midair, nowhere near the ball. And it was a very well-placed header. It just kind of pinged on the post and went in. Um, Well-deserved. I think the U.S. has to feel good that Sweden did not score an open play though. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you have to, again, give credit to Nayer there for stopping that breakaway. Right. She had two. She had, well, actually, no, there was one that she missed and then there was the one that she did. Yeah. Um, So sure. Um, I just think, and even, I think Dunn would probably admit she didn't have a great game. And I think O'Hara would admit she didn't have a great game. Right. um, As you mentioned, the U.S. front line seemed pretty lackluster. I do, I do want to give Sweden credit though, because I noticed exactly what you were mentioning about 
wait, why isn't the U.S. pressure working? Right. And I don't necessarily think it was that they weren't trying to pressure. I think mm-hmm. Sweden, from a technical level, was just able to work out around of those it. Yeah. situations. They would. They were so good about providing help angles to their teammates where you would see the U.S. go to pressure and then you'd realize Sweden looked like they were in the middle of a 5v2 drill because they had so many different outlets that no matter where the U.S. pressured, they were just finding that. And then I think you saw that on the right side, the number of times that the wing back and the wing were able to combine on give and goes uh, around O'Hara or whoever happened to be out on that right side was really impressive. Just simple passing, mm-hmm. but really effective and uh, were able to t- take advantage of their numbers up situations really well. Yep. So I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit. You can, you don't have to, you don't have to give definitive answers if you don't want Carly Lloyd, her 300th cap, big achievement. Uh, don't know if she started because of that achievement or if it was because of form in training. Uh, do you think she did enough in this game to say, yes, she is going to be one of the five who goes to Tokyo? So I, I've thought this for the longest time, uh, despite all of the yelling that I've seen on Twitter <laughs> about, you know, the, the, the need to drop her from the roster is that you can't drop her from the roster and not because of any sort of, uh, player power issue. I just don't think there's another backup number nine to play yeah. the role right. the way that she, her and Morgan have a very similar style now um, that obviously I realize people might not think that's true because they still have in their head 2012 Alex Morgan, right. but that is not who Alex Morgan is today. Um, although the one caveat that I've given going all the way back to to 29 the end of 2019 when we found out that Alex Morgan was pregnant and might miss the 2020 Olympics mm-hmm. uh, was that and you mentioned her earlier Amy Rodriguez yeah man number nine for this team yeah and I I thought that watching the Challenge Cup last summer I still think that today um, I, I I have no thought that this is ever going to happen right I think you could decide to go with Rodriguez over Lloyd and have as good a team or maybe even a slightly better team than you do. Uh, But again, I don't think that's happening. And I absolutely 100% believe Carly Lloyd is on that roster. Yeah. I, uh, I get what you're saying. Um, Right. They're two very similar players, Morgan and Lloyd. I think you're right about Rodriguez because my issue with Lloyd is still just finishing. She skied a couple balls in this game when she needed to not do that because they were not going to get that many looks. Williams, I've been a big Williams defender, but similar issue where she was struggling to be effective as a defender and struggling to be effective in front of goal. And that's how you end up in a draw where you lose on penalty kicks. And so that's the thing that's tough. Okay, here's the other one, though. Here's another person that I wasn't sure about going into this year. Maybe this is just me and what I'm bringing to it. And I will also say that the U.S. actually just played better in the second half than they did in the first half. A lot of things were working better in the second half. Megan Rapino, she comes on mm-hmm. and the energy yep. changes a little bit. Yep, It's a little bit like play the music. Here comes Megan Rapino right. to save the day. And that call was a questionable one, I think, whether it was in the box or not. 
Uh, the ref was also letting a lot of similar challenges go. I felt like that was maybe a weird little makeup call to some other calls that could have been made in the U.S.'s favor. But Pino comes on, does some stuff. O'Hara wins a penalty and Pino sinks it. Yeah, I thought the same thing when you saw her energy because it. I, I do think that she's looked, you know, maybe, a, I, I don't know how to quantify this, an eighth of a step slower right um the past six months than she did in 2019 and and she's never been the paciest player that's never been a huge part of her game anyway um but yeah I think I think if you were trying to pick who played the best on the front line it's probably her right as as a second half sub and uh yeah I I think that's an important game to have because listen we we're pretty sure uh, based on what Vlatko has said that he's going to have his decision made in the next five to six weeks, right? which only leaves one more camp right? Uh, and, and whatever happens in league play to finalize that last spot or two. And uh, Pino had a, picked a good day to have a good day when the rest of the forwards are having a bad day. That's right. And I think that the thing that I'm maybe seeing, if you see sort of the machinations, maybe you're going to have to rotate no matter what, right? You're probably mm-hmm. not going to have any of your wingers play a full 90 at all ever in this tournament. So you think to yourself, wow, it'd be really great to have the two options of Kristen press or Megan Rapino mm-hmm. start, whoever is feeling good, feeling hot, and then have the other one come on. And that's a good rotation. If you need creativity and maybe a player is not having a great game or whatever. And the thing that I wasn't sure of is can Rapino keep up with the minutes and she's done a pretty good job as the U S has been working its way back into, into more regular games. And is she meant fully mentally engaged? And I think that answer is also yes. So I thought Megan Rapino, she won me over maybe is what I'm saying uh, in this game. Um, Lynn Williams, I think is a big, big, big question mark. Now I think the thought that I actually also had about Lynn Williams is I was like, I wonder, obviously she needs to be in camp right now. But she kind of like a Jessica McDonald. If you take Lynn Williams, I'm like, maybe she should be with North Carolina right now. Maybe she should be playing in that system. You pluck her out of that system right before you go. And that might be the best mental place for her. But also if you have other players who are doing better in camp, maybe you just say, well, it's not her year. Uh, I thought Christy Mewis looked good in her limited mm-hmm. minutes. She missed that chance though. I with know. The right foot. I thought <laughs> yeah. that I honestly, my first thought when that ball dropped was like, she puts this away. She's going to Tokyo. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. She yep. might've thought that too, based on the look on her face. What happened? Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So I think that this game, the U S will learn a lot. I think that I know that Andonovsky will not be happy with the way the team defended. Right. Uh, They are not supposed to have players get caught in isolation the way that they were in this game. And the fact that they didn't lose it still just gives you that feeling of the U S still has some of those intangibles and a little bit of referee help, which can be a big intangible in these sorts of things uh, to, to get the draw. It's the first draw of the Andonovsky era. They still have not lost since he took over. Um, France is going to be really interesting. France also has some wingers that are super mm-hmm. good. And yep. so we'll see how that goes for them. Um, yeah, good to learn now. You don't want to go in not having put yourself in those situations, but also quite frankly, on the day, having seen the situation before doesn't necessarily protect you from another team who is executing their game plan well. Um, so that was the US. Uh, any other big thoughts? Any thoughts about France? 
Yeah, I mean, like for one, I hope U.S. soccer does a quick peek across the street to the cab stand in La Havre and just make sure there's no Americans still there waiting for their <laughs> for their ride home after the 2019 <laughs> game. But um, no, I'm you know seriously, I, I almost this is people thought I was a lunatic when I said this in January 2019 um, when the U.S. got rocked by France at right. the beginning of that that World Cup year. But I, I had said like if I'm Jill Ellis, I'm a little bit happy. That right. we lost that game to just kind of refocus everybody, and it, it would not have been the worst thing if the U.S. would have lost that game to Sweden. They were getting right. angry. I noticed that though, because you don't—we haven't seen it a lot recently. You could right. tell the team started getting that tunnel vision mm-hmm. as the as the minutes ticked on, and I was like, "This is cool to watch because we haven't seen them try to do this yet." But maybe they need to get used to doing it yeah. a little bit more. Yeah, it's not the worst thing to yeah. lose a game every once in a while to help your kid, you know, to help your players get. Get refocused. Right. Yeah. I agree. I wonder a little bit though, if I go back and forth on this, on how useful it is for the U S to lose games and when it might be a little bit nicer to lose a game in January of a summer tournament rather than lose a game in April of a summer tournament. That's fair. Uh, But also scheduling is what it is. This world, the world has been the way that it has been. And you just kind of pick up what you can. The one thing I will say, and I said, I thought this last night, I am desperate and they should be too. It didn't happen at the She Believes Cup. The U.S. has to play Japan before they come to Tokyo. Otherwise, they are missing a big, big portion of that competition. They did not play them in 20... 20- no, they did. They played them in the... Did they play them in a friendly in 2019? No, that was... It was 2020. It was a 2020 She Believes. Right, that's right. Um, and that went well for them. Japan's tuning up, though. And they present a different look. And I think that that is part of the homework that would be missing if they don't get that in. So maybe that's the tournament of nations that they're going to try to do right before the tournament, but we will see. So that we talked for a long time. That was five games, lots of good stuff. We'll see if we keep up this pace going forward, but it felt worth it to do a deep dive into all of these matches since we haven't had any in such a long time. Um, hopefully we covered everything and we'll kind of see what happens. I think we have some midweek games. We have some weekend games. We're going to have a lot to talk about next week as well. So I have been Claire Watkins, your host. Uh, Thank you so much, John, for joining me. Once again, shout out to producer extraordinaire Jacqueline Purdy, and we will talk to you guys next week.